Well, what time is it we've been at? Tabernacle time. I love this place, and it is an incredible opportunity to be here and to get reacquainted and to meet new friends and to hear what God is doing. And I just wanted to share with you this piece of paper. This piece of paper is so, so thin that it blows out of my hand. But this piece of paper represents a depth of pain and anguish and brokenness that would go for miles because it represents decades in some of these instances of things that people were carrying around that God invited us to unfollow. I did hash marks as I was praying through the list that over 80 people turned in cards from the first night when we were looking at the Gerizim demoniac and the chains that he kept breaking and the cutting that he kept breaking. The largest number of people wrote down that they wanted to unfollow people-pleasing, validation from others. They wanted to unfollow a sense of rejection that they were carrying around. They wanted to unfollow other people's expectations for their lives. And they wanted to unfollow a perfectionism that comes from that. 36 people in this room wrote that down. The second thing that most people wanted to unfollow, 24 people wrote one of these things. They wanted to unfollow their pride. They wanted to unfollow their desire to control the people around them. You know, nowhere in the Bible does it say we're to practice others' control, does it? The fruit of the Spirit, the last, that last one, of course, is what? Self-control. But how many of us have been tormented by this desire to control the people around us? 24 people also included in that are people that wanted to unfollow their selfishness and the stuff in their lives. The third most listed thing that people want to unfollow, uh, actually it's tied with the pride and the other's control, is this distractions, time wasters. Their inordinate, untainable schedule and social media being overwhelmed with all those inputs and all those distractions. The fourth group of people, 18 people want to unfollow or were laying at the altar their anxiety, their worry, their concern about the future, their distrust in God, trusting him for the future, and fear. Fifthly was 16 people wanting to lay down before God and to unfollow their resentment, their anger, their unforgiveness for things that they were carrying around and their past regrets. Nine people put down that they want to be done with and unfollow porn, lust, and shame. Se seventh was people who wanted to unfollow the drama in their lives and the toxic people who were leading them in their lives. And then the last category was those who wanted to unfollow money problems in their lives. One thin piece of paper that represents a depth of pain, that represents a depth 
of anxiety, of fear, of decades of their past accumulating all here. So tonight, after looking at the Gerizim demoniac, and after looking at the rich young ruler's close encounter with Jesus, and the challenge that Jesus laid before him, I want to look at two women. One who had a close encounter with Jesus who was younger, and one who was older. But first I want to pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Bring us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. How many people can name anyone on Charlie Brown's baseball team? Who plays shortstop? Snoopy. Yeah. Well, in one of Charles Schultz's great cartoons, the Peanuts are playing baseball, and Lucy, who plays outfield, misses an easy fly ball. And Charlie Brown leaves the pitcher's mound and walks out to talk to her. And he asks her what happened. And Lucy replies this, the past got in my eyes. How true is that for so many of us? The past got in my eyes. If only it were limited to baseball, huh? How much of your life is dominated by your past? Where does the anxiety come from? The unforgiveness come from? The regrets come from? The bitterness come from? I want us to look at this encounter with Jesus and the response of people whose past had dominated their eyesight. And it comes just after Jesus has healed the centurion's son, servant, and raised the widow's son from death, spoken with John the Baptist's followers. And if you brought your Bible with you, it's in Luke chapter 7. And it's a longer passage, so it would be worth following in your own Bible. You know, I do make little brackets in my Bible, or if I hear a message or a couple words that jump out at me, I write in the margins of my Bible so that I can find it again. And if that helps you, go for it. Starting in verse 36, chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's home, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. 
So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward this woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came to your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't pour oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Because they knew only God could forgive sins. But still, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't you know that everyone wanted to have Jesus over to their house for dinner? Don't you know whenever he went to a village and he didn't stay in any one village very long, this man was the talk of the town, healing the leper, giving sight to the blind, raising the widow's son right out of his coffin, and he had invitations to one social gathering after another. He had a lot of invitations because you know what? He was homeless. He said the foxes have dens, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's face it. We worship a homeless guy who was murdered. When you boil it down, we worship a homeless guy who was murdered. Simon the Pharisee's dinner was among those dinners. And Luke tells the story. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. That was the custom in first century Palestine. You eat reclining at a table on their left side so they could eat with their right hand. It saved on having to rent chairs, you know. Verse 37, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she had to have thought, I've got to see this man. She had to have heard, he's the one who sets the captives free. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Now this is a woman who lived a sinful life like the Gerizim demoniac, this woman didn't have a name. Considering the whole town knew her reputation, it's odd that they didn't know her name. She was a prostitute and all that goes along with it. But whatever her history, she stayed well informed about the late breaking news of the day. And Luke tells us she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. You know, oftentimes the poor people were allowed to visit public banquets to snatch up the leftovers. But this woman didn't come empty-handed. She came with her most precious gift, an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, alabaster is something that you can still get today. It was a soft stone imported from Egypt into Palestine, and it was especially popular for perfume and for ointments. It was a light and creamy stone, usually lined with veins, and it was likely a palm-sized common flask. 
And this woman wasn't wearing the perfume, drawing attention to herself with its scent. She was carrying this small alabaster vial. Look at verse 38. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Jesus' eyes must have reflected compassion, not judgment. Let me say that again. Jesus' eyes reflect compassion, not judgment. His words were kind, not cruel. She was drawn to him closer and closer and closer until she stood right behind him. And when the tears began to flow from a well so deep inside her, those murky waters had never seen the light of day. And they were slipping down her cheeks to Jesus' feet. Her weeping left her vulnerable. When was the last time you wept? When was the last time it welled up on you and your face got screwed up and you couldn't hide it anymore? Chances are it might have been too long. You know, the kind that leave you vulnerable, they leave you exposed. For her, they left her repentant and not caring who saw her or what they thought of her. She didn't try to stop. She couldn't. I think they were tears of sorrow and tears of joy all mixed. She knew Jesus understood her and forgave her and loved her. He didn't brush off her tears. He did not send her away. He allowed it, and he accepted her worship, and her body soon followed her tears as she dropped to her knees only inches from the feet of her Savior. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. You know, her hair would have been bound up, as was the custom, according to the social customs then. Imagine a Middle Eastern woman, even today, letting down her hair in public. It was considered so bold and so provocative, so abhorrent, it was grounds for divorce. Just that. But here she was, already outcast. You know, when you've hit bottom, you don't get threatened so much by anything anymore. She belonged to no one. Think of that. How many people today, with the loneliness epidemic going on in our world, feel as though no one cares whether they live or die? Feel like no one cares? We baptized a young man in our church in the river three weeks ago, and he had gotten out of drugs and some other tough lifestyle stuff and gotten into weightlifting, the gym, bodybuilding, even some competitions. And that helped him get out of a lot of those things. But he said it was so empty because all anyone ever saw him as was a body. How many people going through life feel as though no one sees them except through some exterior thing? Overcome, her thoughts were surely spinning. Jesus received her adoration. 
She became more overcome. Like, could this really be? And she let her mouth follow the same path as her fingers had taken and lightly touched his feet with her lips, kissing him. You know, it was custom to touch a drop of the perfumed ointment to his head, but she had lost her restraint. And extravagantly and yet with purpose, purpose, she poured the contents of her precious alabaster jar all over his feet. What a mess. Tears, salt water, perfume stinking up the whole room. Part of her trade the same per perfume that she used to seduce men was poured out every priceless drop to honor the one man who would never use her. We have a newer guy in my Thursday morning men's group at Dexter Methodist. And he said what got his attention was an, uh, the guy who ultimately invited him to the church and then to this men's group when they sat down for coffee or for lunch, both worked at the same corporation, and, and the guy was sharing, Mark, who invited him, was the one person in his life that didn't want something from him. And that caught him off guard. Mark said to the guy, where do you go when you're in trouble? Where do you go when you're in need? And Rob didn't have an answer. But Mark was able to say, there is a place. There is someone you can go to. But because he didn't want anything from him, Rob was open to Mark. Rob was open to Mark's invitation to church, to plugging in with this men's group that we meet with at 7 a.m. every Thursday. So many people in life are are like porcupines because they're so used to everybody wanting something from them. Be careful if someone's got a talent that is so obvious. Be careful if someone has done very well for themselves one way or another. Be careful if someone's got something going on in their lives that seems to define them. Because that's all most people see. Jesus saw past this woman's defenses, past this woman's reputation, past this woman's past. And he sees through you the same. And he didn't want something from her. So this woman pours out every priceless drop to honor the one man who would never use her. Can you picture this party scene at the moment? Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him. He'd know what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. Good old Simon didn't miss a trick. He kept an eye on everything that was said and done around Jesus. And here's this woman making a total idiot of herself and of Jesus. Now, Simon may have been sympathetic to Jesus and to his ministry and truly interested. After all, there was something there. 
As a Pharisee, it was Simon's sincere desire to observe the law of God. That's such a good thing. But the minute that we are observing the law of God, it can be very easy to forget the heart of the lawgiver and the heart behind the law. And the fact that the law is because God has loved us already. It's not to earn anything. He gave his life to making the effort even when other Jews didn't, but he was completely unsympathetic toward this woman. So Jesus drew Simon in, and listen to what he does. He tells Simon a parable. It's actually a parable I can understand, unlike some of them, right? Two men each get their debt canceled. Which guy's more grateful? It's a no-brainer. Simon the host gets it, the one with the bigger debt canceled. Then Jesus asked him, do you see this woman? Simon had only seen her for what she was, not who she was. You know, there are so many people I don't see. There are so many people I tell myself I don't see. When Jesus noticed every detail and he responds. You may be here anonymously, but Jesus knows every detail of you and he responds and he loves you infinitely. But you know, unless we're in some kind of interaction with Jesus, we miss his response. So then, by pointing out things that she did right, and the things that Simon should have done right, Jesus manages to affirm her and to admonish him at the same time without stripping either one of them of their dignity. Jesus does acknowledge her many sins. That's simply the reality of her situation and ours too. But he doesn't condemn her for them. Perhaps she had already given her life or given up her life of that sin. And her heart was in plain view as she knelt at his feet. Without a word, she expressed her forgiveness and her repentance in her encounter with Jesus. So Jesus says, therefore I tell you, how many sins have been uh, her many sins have been forgiven. Verse 47, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. So hear this. Those who have lived can never see what those who have died and now live can see. Let me say that again. Those who have only lived can never see what those of us who have died and now live can see. You know, I'll bet when I sit in here, when you sit in church, when you feel discouraged or I feel discouraged or I feel just plain bored or out of tune with the music, let alone with God, it's easy to blame a lot of stuff from a bad night's sleep to an argument with my wife. But the truth probably is I'm not willing to confess my sins. I'm not willing to pour myself out so that true worship can begin. I forget how much I've already been forgiven so my gratitude could flow. Those of us who have lived can never see what those who have died and now live can see. Have you died to that? Have you clicked the unfollow button and not re-clicked it back into following? Look at verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Interesting, Simon was not included in that one. Catch this. Forgiveness is always personal with Jesus. Forgiveness is always personal 
with Jesus. It's not just some blanket kind of thing. It's one on one. Personal with him. He died for the sins of the whole world. But forgiveness comes to each of us individually when we demonstrate and when we say, please, Lord, I receive you. Of course, the people were aghast. He has some nerve. Who does he think he is forgiving her sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It wasn't interesting. It wasn't her love that saved her. It was her faith in his power to forgive her. It was her faith in his steadfast love for her. Faith is putting your belief into actions, not just words. We talked about this at the Bible study. If I have faith that this monitor can hold me, it means my belief has to be in action. I can believe that that monitor would hold me if I choose to sit on it. But I don't have any faith until I put that belief into action. Do you see the one step further that that means? Now, what happens with God is we sit, we put our faith in God, but pretty soon my weight's back on my own feet and I'm kind of one cheek in it. Because I don't want to have to put my faith that much that if he falls, I fall. But that's what faith is. Belief into action, not just words. Belief into action around here, not just words. Belief into action in your home church, not just words. Belief into action at your home, not just words. And then he says to her, go in peace. Peace. My good friend, Dr. Marty Fletcher, who has a full practice, Christian counseling, psychologist, said the one commonality that everyone has, whether they are there with addictions, whether they are there for anxiety, whether they're there for depression, whether they are there over the fears of their lives or the broken relationships, the one thing everyone says when they are able to name it that they are looking for is peace. They're looking for relief from the pain. They're looking for relief from the pain that their sin or brokenness has caused, even if they have no clue that that's what it is. And Jesus says, go in peace. What everyone hopes for, what everyone prays for, what everyone longs for. The Amplified Bible's phrases peace is this, the freedom from all the distresses that are experienced as a result of sin. Peace comes to those who are willing to move away from sin and toward the Prince of Peace until his peace becomes their own. Why is it so hard? Is it that we know people will talk? But you know what? People are going to talk no matter what we do. They talked when this woman was in sin. They talked when she sacrificed herself in worship. They talked when Jesus forgave her sin. People talk. We know Jesus can discern people's thoughts and his intentions. Even though words have a great value, when you're talking to Jesus directly, you can hear better if you're listening in silence and in worshiping, not just in talking. The prophet Habakkuk said this, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Have you practiced any presence of Jesus in silence? Why is it so hard to encounter and to worship Jesus like this woman? I think there are three reasons the Pharisee found it hard. First of all, this Jesus isn't what I expected from God. 
In other words, he's outside my box of what I think God should be. Jesus also doesn't play by my rules. And I have no need, I want no forgiveness. You know, these things that I've named are poor excuses because each fails to deal with the reality. Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. You know, he didn't just say love each other a little more. Jesus' message wasn't just love each other a little more. You don't crucify somebody who says just love each other a little more. You put them on Oprah or Dr. Phil. Jesus' message was repent and believe. The Father and I are one. He is the reality, no matter what I expected. He makes the rules. He supplies my every need. Jesus is my next breath. So how do we respond today to our own encounter with Jesus? When it comes to this young woman, I guess I want to ask you this question. Are you willing to risk extravagance? Are you willing to risk extravagance in how you love your wife, in how you love your kids, in how you love your husband, in how you love your folks, in how you take care of yourself, in how you minister to people who can't do anything back for you? Are you willing to risk extravagance? Ask God to free you to love him extravagantly and give, others, give to others extravagantly and forgive extravagantly. Because we know what we know, we can afford to be extravagant. But how does that play out in our lives? It's one thing for this woman who was there in the first century in Palestine who found out where Jesus was and he went there. she went there. And so I want to look at one other woman who had an encounter with Jesus, even though we don't know exactly when and how it happened. The Apostle Paul was in prison, and he chose to write a letter of encouragement to Timothy. But listen to what Paul points out to Timothy. Timothy obviously was going through some tough stuff. If you are a, a longer-time Christian, an older Christian, do you have any Timothys in your life? Maybe that's your prayer. Lord, make me a Paul. Let me be in a ministry to Timothy's. Listen to what Paul points out to Timothy as a key aspect of his faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul says this, I've been reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandma. Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. You know I love this, because how much of the things that we need to follow are because we struggle against timidity. What other people think of us. People pleasing. Comparing ourselves to other people and we lose any kind of humble confidence that God wants to give us. And Paul says, first things first, Timothy, 
know that you're not the first. When we face all the stuff in our lives, we tend to forget that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, those who have told us about Jesus, those who have faced their own world wars, their own depressions, their own crises, their own loved ones' deaths, their own terror, their own struggles with their children. How easy it is to reduce God's story to our size, to our circumstances. Do not reduce God to our circumstances, no matter how scared you are right now. When God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, it reminds me of what my grandma Hook used to say. She was 10 years old when she came to faith in Christ in a Swedish Methodist church in a, um, that was right next to their farm in uh, just a few miles south of the Wisconsin border in Illinois. And she came forward that morning to receive Jesus at her altar. That night, two handfuls of youth came down and my grandma's mom, my great-grandma, said to her, look how God used you in the lives of those kids to give them courage to, to come forward to receive Christ for themselves. And the Holy Spirit was with my grandma for two years before her own mom died of tuberculosis. God came to her in time for her And my grandma died about 15 years ago, but she always said this, in all my years, in all my life, I've never been alone. Either God was with me and made me strong enough to face whatever it was, or God put someone in my life to get me through. That's what Paul's talking about to Timothy. Timothy came to faith in Christ through his grandma Lois and his mom Eunice. And Paul is telling Timothy to claim the spirit of power and love and self-discipline that he had witnessed day in and day out growing up. And I'm calling it grandma's faith. We have the woman's faith in spite of what everyone thought of her. And then we have grandma's faith. I want to say a couple things about a grandma's faith. First of all, it's a daily faith. It's not just for Sundays, it's not just for show, it's for every meal. It's when you wake up and you say, good morning, Lord, instead of, good Lord, it's morning. <laughs> a grandma's faith is a daily faith. It's not perfect, but even when you miss the mark, you don't go too far away because it's daily. It's a faith also that you live out in your own culture. Sometimes it's easier to start over with your friends or reinvent yourself, but a grandma's faith is one that you live out right where you are, where everybody knows you and they know your background and they know what you did in high school and what you said. You live out grandma's faith in your own home. You don't have to go far away. You don't have to do anything dramatic. You don't have to come up with cool quips that you put on Instagram. Paul seems to suggest that the power of a lived out Faith with those who know you best can have a generations-long legacy. In our church, we just started two classes on spiritual grandparenting because a lot of grandparents are raising their kids. And a lot of grandparents are bringing their grandkids to church because the kids aren't coming. It sort of reminds me of this hilarious quote that my dad had from a friend. It said this, and I don't know if it's true or not. It said, if you raise your kids, you can spoil your grandchildren. But if you spoil your kids, you'll be raising your grandchildren. 
And then the quote said, everything makes sense now. <laughs> it's a daily faith lived out in your own culture, in your own home. And when you do this, you can leave a generation's long legacy, even right where you are. Because remember what we say at my church, we say this, becoming a Christ follower doesn't make you better than anybody else, but it makes you better than you once were. Let me say that again. Becoming a Christ follower doesn't make you better than anybody else, but it makes you better than you once were. A grandma's faith is a reminder that your faith isn't always fancy or earth-shattering. It's just faithful. It's the power of the flywheel that the business author Jim Collins talked about. You know, making sausage day in, day out. A little bit of forward progress each day. There was a gentleman in our church, and they moved to Florida. His name was Darcel Toll, and he was a major awesome gardener. And he took care of the grounds at the church, and I saw the gardens at his house. Just a great servant of God. And I said, Darcel, what do you do for weeds? Because I, I like to dig in the dirt. We have a, a beautiful um, garden at our house. Not a vegetable garden, but hostas. We, I've got like 90 different kinds of hostas and all kinds of, mostly perennials. And Darcel said, oh, I use the coffee cup method. And I was like, coffee cup method? This sounds really good. And here's what you do, he said. You pour yourself a cup of coffee, and you go outside with the coffee in one hand, and you pull weeds until the coffee is gone. And then you go in. And the next day, you pour yourself a cup of coffee, Take your coffee with you out in the garden and you pull weeds until the coffee is gone. And the following day, pour yourself a cup of coffee, you go out and you pull weeds and enjoy the garden until the coffee's gone and then you go in. It's the coffee cup method. And that's not fancy or earth shattering, just faithful. That's it. It's the same with our faith. A little bit each day, nothing fancy, nothing earth-shattering. And pretty soon, you'll be gaining traction in whatever it is. Pretty soon, you'll be far along the path, reading a chapter a day. Just a bit of living each day with Jesus. You know, a few moments of good prayer time, good conversations with a difficult person each day. And listen, if you're not in some kind of a weekly Bible study... And I was in this men's group. We prayed at the end, which they weren't comfortable with 16 years ago when we started. And they said, we don't want structure. I'm like, okay, we just pour coffee in the, in the church kitchen. And then we, then we go and we talk about how's your life? How's your walk with Christ? How's your ministry going? Whatever that means to them. And it took probably three years before we brought in actual Bible study and worked our way through some of the books of the New Testament. If you're not in some kind of a Bible study or a group like that so that you can practice your version of the coffee cup method of weeding the garden or your life, that faithful response each day will move you miles when you take a bit each day. We can't get done as much in a day as we think we can, but if we're faithful, we can make a move. And think of how many years some of these grandmas have been at it. Quit trying to do so much in a day 
Just be faithful. Remember, you don't have to impress God and you can't. So give up on the fancy stuff and stick with the faithful daily living. There won't be that much great to post on Facebook or Instagram as a result. But if you're living it for God, you're performing for an audience of one. All of us, when we get together and worship, we are here performing for an audience of one. This is not the audience. This is the audience. These guys are not the performers. The rest of us are. God is the audience. They're just the prompters in order for us to worship God in spirit and in truth. If you're living it for God, you're performing for an audience of one. So don't get swayed by the TVs, by the clips, by all the awesome stuff on Instagram, the news-making witnesses. Just be faithful right where you are. You know, my grandmas were good at waiting on you, whether it was Thanksgiving or laundry. That's not fancy, but that's love and that's serving. It's not newsworthy, but it's also not for sissies. That's the faith. Can you be faithful right where you are? And when you do so, Paul says, it will fan into flame the gift of God. It's not a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of love, of power, of self-discipline, no matter what you're facing. And remember, your grandma has faced a lot. There's something about grandmas. And this faith was handed through the ages. In my offices, I... In my office at church, I have some pieces of the Berlin Wall because I got to go to Germany in 1991 right after, I'm sorry, the summer of 1990 when just eight months earlier, the Berlin Wall came down, November of 1989. Now, some of the college kids that were in my office were like, what, what are those rocks? And they had never heard of the Berlin Wall that separated, and the chain link that I've got a piece of from the Iron Curtain that separated Czechoslovakia from Austria. I treasure them for the reminder that of my visits there, but mostly I value them for the Christians that I met in Old East Germany and in Prague. I was there on an evangelism conference, and it was so cool because there were these old ladies at this evangelism conference who were little girls when communism took over. And they were above ground dusting the altars. They were above ground having government-sanctioned worship services. And at this conference, they were meeting these young Christians who were college students who had been smuggling in Bibles. And these young, cool guys had so much respect for these old ladies. We call them babushkas, or that's what they call them over there, you know, with tying the scarf around their head. Yeah. And these old ladies loved these young men and women who were college students. And these young men and women, they revered these old women for what they had been through above ground as Christians. And they shared this story with us. It's Joseph Stalin. Stalin is quoted more than once as saying this, when all the babushkas die, when all the old grandmas die, Christianity in the USSR will be dead and communism will have won. The Christian church was terribly persecuted. Many pastors, many lay people lost their lives. The church could not use their buildings. They were mostly taken over by the government. 
this is less than 100 years ago that all this happened. The government had informants in the worship services that would hear and, and the person in question could be deported. They were, worship san- they were government-sanctioned events devoid of most of their meaning. But those babushkas, those old grandmas who were dusting off the altars, they began having birthday parties with the young women. And at those birthday parties, guess what stories they told? They had birthday parties every week. And they began praying that the Spirit of God would move. They began praying. They were only little girls when communism took over. But they were praying for a day when the church could openly again share the good news, salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, in November of 1989, the wall went down in Germany and the Velvet Revolution happened in the Czech Republic. They called it the Velvet Revolution because not one person was killed. Communism fell. And those old praying grandmas kept right on praying. And the churches all together at noon in the great city of Prague made a plan to ring their church bells, which had been silent for more than 50 years. They couldn't have any signs outside their churches, let alone even the times of their worship services. And we got to meet this little old pastor from Prague. He was a Methodist pastor there. And he was telling us this story. And he said, when it came time for the, the next day at noon to ring the bells, his wife made a sign that they put outside of their church. And the sign simply said this, the Lamb won. The Lamb won. The bells rang. How do you love Jesus? Has it been with extravagance and with embarrassment? Has it been with a daily faith that's not fancy that you live out at home? There was a lot of people leaning in when I said, do you know what your next step is? Are you a 30-year-old Christian or are you a one-year-old Christian 30 years in the making? Whether it's like the woman with the alabaster jar or whether it's like Lois pouring into Timothy with a grandma's faith. It's my prayer that today you will make your faith known. Forgiveness of sin, unfollowing the depth of pain in this skinny little sheet, naming before God at the altar what it is and asking him for strength and endurance to live a grandma's faith. Let us pray.